So my name is Cheryl Arondel. I'm Cree Métis. I'm originally from the place now known as Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Uh, I currently reside in Toronto. Uh, my work is uh, as an interdisciplinary um, artist and singer-songwriter. And I have a couple main projects that I've been working on the last, well, since I turned 50 um, in 2008. And those are um, one project where I have been going into prisons, uh, provincial correctional institutions and youth uh, detention centers across Canada co-writing songs with women, men and youth in those uh, facilities. And the other uh, major project is a project where I sing land and I guess we'll describe that and discuss that more. And um, what was your first interaction to becoming artist? Was was music something that was a thread throughout your life and your family? Can you kind of break down that that initial interaction with music, with art? Yeah, I, I exist in the visual art world uh, and have done so for 35 years, but it's always been music or audio or sound that really is, I think, where I live, you know, where I'm the happiest, where I'm the most expressive. I definitely come from a family of musicians um, on both sides of my family. On my mom's side of my family, I have, uh, she's from 15 brothers and sisters, and my early childhood was always hearing music. So that was always there. It was always deeply embedded. And there was even aspects about our family gatherings that later in life informed work that I started doing in performance art. Uh, for instance, uh, what I loved about performance art was the fact that you were never, it wasn't like theater. There was not a focus. There was not a focus point, and that was the actor who, was, who had the lead role. In our family, it was just as valid to be completely, completely absorbed and taken by my Uncle John's foot tapping as he played the fiddle, and to then want to play the spoons to keep time to that. You know, so performance art was this notion that there wasn't the sense of focus, that there was many focuses, there was many minute things happening that were all of equal and importance. So yeah, I think things from my early childhood always helped me find that when I was making art, ah, I'm in the right spot. This is the right thing to be doing. And I think the reason now that I've gotten older that I've returned back mostly to music, although with those two major projects that I introduced, uh, there's always new media components around them. There might be a sense of performativity around them. But, uh, you know, at the, essentially at the core of it, it's, it's, a, it's about music. It's about song composition. It's about sounding into the ether. 
Let's talk about your project um, regarding incarceration in the prison system. And can you dive into that a little bit more? I know in America we have a lot of problems with incarceration right now. And there's there's a lot of artists who are are speaking on that in their work. But I've never really talked to anybody who does audio as their like main format for kind of interacting with with the people involved in prison systems so I'm really interested on your take and and what this project entails I would love to talk about this project more it's definitely um, a passion project for me I started in the I guess it started in the 90s uh, I was singing in a duo called Nigamuk which in my language means sing um, and it was a, a duo with a wonderful, well, he's, he's my brother now. Um, uh, his name is Joseph Netauhau, and we would travel around. We went reserves all across Canada, and we started getting inviting it, invited into detention centers, um, mostly because Joseph was also a master Cree storyteller. And, um, you know, we both wanted to sing, but we would intersperse songs with, with um, with stories, uh, especially for those detention centers. And, uh, you know, I just such dear, 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 dear young kids that we were hanging out with who were mostly native. The stats in Canada, much different than the United States. Right now, the indigenous population is something like, statistically, which we know is problematic, but statistically it's about 6% of the Canadian population. I'd say it's more, but um, statistically speaking, that's uh, population. And yet in prisons um, and these correctional facilities across Canada, our population is anywhere from 33 to 98%. So that means that how much of our population is actually living or spending you know, chunks of time in their life behind bars, it's quite staggering. You know, so it's like really going and visiting relatives. And I think, you know, that's what those early visits were like for me was it was just we were just hanging out with some young, young men or some young women. Then I had the opportunity in 1999 to go to a um, women's correctional center. And there's a song that I had learned in in Toronto You know, as an artist, you move around a lot. <laughs> so I so I so I had lived in Ontario previously or in Toronto and then moved away and then moved back and moved away and moved back. So in one of these moves, I was singing with a group of singers called the Anishinaabekwe Singers in Toronto, and that group was going into P4W or Prison for Women, which was one of the most well-known prisons in Canada, mostly because it became known to the media of the atrocities that were happening inside the prison, random riots. Um, staged uh, that resulted in strip searches, rapes, um, you know, physical abuse to the women, uh, isolation naked after they'd been abused, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the group, Anishinaabekwe Singers, was going and sharing songs with that sisterhood. And there was one song particularly from that, those collaborations and those gatherings um, that 
became known as the Strong Woman Song. And so at this particular facility in 1999, several years later, there was a couple women in the front who were not happy to be in prison, I suspect, uh, and maybe just having a really bad day. And I could tell, as a performer can, you know, you can kind of read your audience and know, oh, there's going to be some trouble. These girls are going to try and uh, mess things up. So I thought, well, let me engage them. How could I engage them? And there's a wonderful Black Lodge uh, powwow uh, version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Black Lodge is a group from the States. Um, and I said, you know, I started teasing everyone and said, hey, let's sing a powwow song together. And I was thinking Twinkle, Twinkle would be fun. And a young woman in the middle of the uh, audience says, are you going to sing Strong Woman's Song? And I said, wow, how do you know about that song? And she said, my mom was in P4W. And that just, you know, that kind of just really gutted me that the fact that second generation is in prison. And I said, well, I said, you know, you, you should, you tell the story, you know the story. And she said, well, I do, she said, but you're, you're on stage, you, you tell the story. So... So I told the story, and it's quite a beautiful story of, of when women's voices are together. And after the story was finished, it's a long one. I won't, I won't tell you because I come from a family that knows how to make a short story really long. So, um, <laughs> but after the after the story was finished, I looked around, and everyone was so present. Mm. Even the guards, even the program staff, the two women in front who weren't having a good day—they were completely there. And when I said, well, should we sing that song together? Everyone sang it together en masse. Everyone was happy because they owned it. That's what I realized. I went, that's their song, you know. And that was the day that I realized that there was something really important that happened in that moment. And, um, and I'd been asked many times by that facility and others if I would go and do a workshop you know, in Canada, we have um, a lot more arts funds and a lot more community arts funds. And I'd always said no, uh, just because I, the years of traveling around and visiting with kids for an hour, you know, and just being happy that you visited, but there was always this niggling little thought in my being that was like, we didn't do something really constructive. We could have done something together. We could have made something, you know? Mm. So it was that moment, that was the moment where it was the aha moment of, ah, we can, we can write songs together. This is what we can do. Um, and so it took a couple more years. Um, I needed to get some different resources uh, in hand and some, a few different things, like some producers who I knew uh, would be interested in working on the project and, you know, different things. So in uh, 2008, I finally started this process of going to different facilities. Uh, to date, we're up to song seven. Song eight will be recorded in a couple weeks. So it's it. I, I would have loved to have had it that every week or every month I could go into a facility, but they're not easy to get into. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to get into a facility to get clearance. And then there's issues that arise within those facilities that you know, cause things like lockdown, which throws your schedule off. And there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of um, um, relationship building, really, you know, mm. uh, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful network. I have to say I've got um, a fair amount of uh, the inmates or the former inmates who are now released, they're Facebook friends. So oh, that's kind of wow. how I keep in touch. And, and I should state here, this is an important part for me of this whole process is that 
you know, the whole notion of um, intellectual copyright comes into play. And for this project um, and all of my other co-writes, because it is a co-write, that's exactly what it is. It's co-writing a song. Um, I have a music publishing company, an indigenous niche music publishing company called Mio Music, which means good music. And um, it's a way to manage uh, the songs to make sure. It's kind of like I had a children with each and every one of the, mm. those um, co-writers. And we need to make sure that that child has a good life. And we need to make sure that uh, something I say to all of the participants that I get to work with, that, you know, that that's my job is to make sure that no one ever says no one ever tries to claim that song you know that I will defend their rights you know and then another I think interesting part of that whole process is that the way that the songs are released they're released as singles and they're released in such a way that if any of the inmates or participants rather want to burn a hundred and sell them and make money that's completely fine there's no there will be no policing of wow. this intellectual property there will not be any uh, you know, they've had enough people telling them that their activities were illegal and, and you know, I'll uphold my side and I will share their, you know, any of the um, funds from licensing. But for them, it's like, that's your song, you know. And what what is the reception after the, with some of the, um, I guess, respondents for this prison project what's the response um you say that you're in contact with many of them who have actually come out on the other side are they pursuing a music type of career of source or art in any way because of this experience i think in inherently um everyone's creative you know and in fact the artwork on the singles is their artwork you know because i I'm not. I'm not a drawer, <laughs> um, and they and all during the process they're drawing. So there's these wonderful drawings that we get to choose from. Um, you know, early on it was suggested to me by one of the producers I worked with, um, who I brought in for the first couple. You know, he was more interested in you know the um, participants who maybe had a natural ability to sing or or their intonation was better. You know. I was more interested in the participants who were super shy, um, who, you know, who it took five days to coax them into getting in front of the microphone, and who subsequently we probably had to do a lot more post-production work to kind of make sure that their voice was, you know, equal and matching the natural, quote-unquote, natural singers. So it was never a project where I was trying to turn anyone into artists or, or anything like that. Um, there's a few of... There's a few that, of course, have, you know, wonderful voices, and I would always take them aside, you know, but not, and the reason I would take them aside and chat to them, it was because I didn't ever want there to be a scenario where I was picking one, well, you're the singer, you know, because mm -hmm. I hate that. Yeah. So it would always be something I would take them aside and go, look, you know, you've got really lovely intonation, and, you know, if you really want to do this, when you get out, you should find every possible opportunity that you can to do this, and... Uh, but, I mean, there's so much about the art world and the music industry that are not great. Mm -hmm. So it's not something where I really think it's a solution, you know, this kind of lifestyle. It's a tough, you know, being an artist is really tough. Being a songwriter or a musician is really tough. And so it behooves me to not, to, to you know, to not paint it as if it's a, oh, 
you know, it's waiting for you and it's going to be fabulous. It's like, no, you'll starve. It'll be horrible. People <laughs> will try and abuse you. You know, let's, you know, this is life. But, but you have these abilities, so do what you want. You know, if you think you want to do this, do what you want. And that's the other thing, too, is that, I mean, I really, I give everyone my phone number, my address. Um, I've had law ongoing correspondences with some who prefer letters to Facebook. So I'm willing if anyone wants help, I'm willing to help anyone. But I guess that's a long-winded way of saying not directly. No one has, uh, not that I know of. <laughs> and what's the what's the trajectory for this particular project? You said it's ongoing, and um, do you see an end to it, or is it just going to kind of organically come to a stop when it's when it's time, when you feel like it's time, or are you trying to like hit? all the systems in Canada in a way, or I'm just wondering what your trajectory is. Thanks for asking that. That uh, It always helps to try and speak about it to help me know what the tra trajectory is. <laughs> I think originally I had lofty ambitions that I was going to, like I say, go to a facility every month and in a year's time I'd have, you know, 12 songs and that'd be an album and then I could walk away. And so 2008 was quite a few years ago and I'm still trudging and doing this work. I also, quite honestly, and I'll be really candid about this at the beginning, in 2008, I think I was much more focused towards having a, a career or continuing in a career where I'd be performing on stage. Um, I've subsequently pretty much quit performing on stage uh, stages. Very rarely do public appearances anymore. Much more interested in songwriting. So, of course, that meant that the whole project shifted because originally it was like, oh, great, I can become um, another, um, you know, another advocate on behalf of um, our brothers and sisters who are behind bars. And this can be something I do on stage because I'll have these songs that I can sing during my performances. So when I stopped performing, it was like, wow, well, that almost made that I had to figure other ways that I was going to be an advocate. And that's hence the music publishing, Mio Music, hmm. has become almost a conceptual music publishing company where the co-writes, interesting co-writes, and that becomes part of the backstory for those songs. So now what we're looking at is each song gets released as a single, and the follow-up project uh, is something uh, called... Why, well, the whole project, I should say, is called Why the Caged Bird Sings. And it's seemingly that would be uh, Maya Angelou, a direct reference. But the poem, uh, or rather the title Why the Caged Bird Sings, references a poem by the late Arthur Solomon, uh, a native elder, an Ojibwe elder from Ontario, who along with a Cree elder named Dr. Joseph Couture, uh, were both responsible in the 70s in Canada for all of the cultural programming inside uh, correctional facilities in this land now known as Canada. And in the poem, he talks about how the work that he's doing is um, opening cage doors for birds and letting them fly where they want to, that the sky is the limit. And it's a beautiful poem from a book called Eating Bitterness. That's all I can remember the title of the book. So I think definitely it's, it's you know, the title Why the Caged Bird Sings is an homage to, definitely to Maya Angelou, but also uh, really an homage to those two gentlemen for the work that they did that enabled me to get inside facilities 
So the album, getting back to the, the concept album and what's next with this project is I'm looking, because these songs are so, they're great songs. They're really well put together. The, the lyrics are amazing. And every time someone hears them, including all the inmates, people just go, wow, like, mm. that's a great song. And it's like, yes. So the concept is to have known singers, whether they be uh, native or non-native, covering the song. And um, the album will be Why the Caged Bird Sings Inside and Out. And the inside will be like, it'll be like a double album. So it'll be the inmates singing their version of the song. And then it'll be this more uh, well-known singer singing their version of the song. And it's a way really to make more money uh, of the inmates. Most of them have been released, but there's a few that are serving longer time. And I tell you, you know, to get a check for even $50 when you're inside goes a long way to uh, just improving your life just that much more. You can buy stamps and, and paper. You can buy nicer shampoo and better soap and underarm deodorant. And so it, it really, uh, it's, uh, it's a thing of pride to get some money. So that's, that's the next, that's the next uh, focus of the whole project. I, I can't say, here's the important bit. I, I don't know that I want to do this for the rest of my life. I will if I have to. I will as long as I keep getting invitations. It's not an inexpensive endeavor. I mean, there's all kinds of people that need to be hired and, you know, plane trips and accommodations and per diems. And it's, you know, so it's costly. So it does, it does require some coordination. I guess my hope is that eventually somebody might, you know, a younger songwriter might come to me and say, could you teach me how to do that? I want to go and do what you do. Because I think I've developed a methodology that's quite inclusive. Like I say, you know, at the end of the five days, every single person in the room has contributed. Uh, even the, whether it be the tough guy or the shy girl, everyone at the end of the process, you know, has contributed and is willing to be part of the production. And I think there's something really important there that, we forget about in, in society where we, where we decide that we can hand pick and cherry pick and decide that only a few select, you know? Um, so I'm really much more interested in this notion of inclusivity. And I would love to, yeah, I would love to share that. I've had a few um, documentarians come to me uh, since I started the project asking if they could make a documentary of it. But what I found with all of them is that really... They just really were more interested in prison access, you know. Whoa. <laughs> so they want. <laughs> so they really, you know, you listen to. The, yeah, I mean it is, and it's. I mean, at first you're flattered. You're like, oh great, because you, you know, I'm thinking, great, I finally get to impart what this is, how this works. But at the end of it, it's like, no, you really just want to make up your own, you know, what is what do they call it? Reality television. You really only want to make up your own reality documentary film, and I'm not interested in supporting that. Because I've got a song that needs to get written and, you know, so there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no distractions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just messing around. Just messing around. I don't know. I don't know. Just holding it down. Just holding it down. Smile, accept your situation. You may be locked in a cell. Even if you're locked up. I won't stop you, you still rise So take a moment and close your eyes And learn to free your mind 
So you were Ursula Johnson's respondent for hashtag call response. And I guess from your perspective, if you could describe your performance and experience with the land sings and um, what your reflection was and maybe start by explaining how you got involved with the project. I've known Ursula for many years. I think I was one of the senior artists at the Banff Center at a residency many years ago. And uh, it may have been her first residency, so it was really lovely. It was just so amazing, actually, to see this young powerhouse uh, artist, you know, coming into her own and just so fabulous. I mean, I know people from the East Coast. I just spent um, several months in the East Coast um, many years previous, so it's always kind of a really dear place in my heart to hang around with the Ulnuk uh, people and the Wulastoki Week people. So that said, um, at that time, I probably was already working on my project, which is called my other project of singing land, which is called, well, it used to be called Nigamonotihaski, meaning um, songs because of the land. And I'm pretty sure I probably presented about that work in Banff then. So that might have been, who knows, deeply seated, you know, in, in uh, mm. people's minds. And do you want to talk about what that work was a little bit to give a preface? I, I mean, it's up to you. Yeah, sure. Context. My, yeah. So that yeah, so that work uh, originally started in um, it started in Vancouver. the The official project was in two thousand and seven. Although uh, there's a gallery in Vancouver called Grunt Gallery that had been since two thousand and four trying to find funds for me to do this project. What I realized for me was that um, because I'm not a drawer and because I've never been able to render anything with a pencil visually, that my skill was actually as a, to sing. I could sing things, you know, so I could describe things by singing them. And so when uh, in 2004, when Grant asked me, you know, we'd like you to do a project, and I said, well, I'd like to map Vancouver, but I, I, I want to map it by singing it. Of course, the curator Glenn Altine, he was he he was referencing the Situationists and that whole derive uh, deboard idea of just walking, and that was fine. But for me, it was more on another level. We have a trickster whose name I can't say because I'm in Australia and it's sunny hot and there's no snow on the ground. Mm. So what we say at this time of year is we say Namoya Kagiwihit, meaning the name that can't be said. So we have this trickster figure whose name we can't say right now. Um, and this trickster figure used to just walk, you know, and this was part of creation was actually to walk. It was um, a way to kind of uh, visit with your relatives and he, uh, he, she would be visiting, of course, with, you know, different animals and different landscapes. So for me, it was really this notion of I would just set out on the day and would just sing whatever I came into contact with. Um, because I'm also a community-engaged artist, uh, when we finally did get all the funds together, there was community engagement funds. And so Vancouver is the city in Canada where if you can't survive a winter anywhere else in Canada, you'll, you'll survive a winter in Vancouver because it rarely dips below zero. Um, or what's your Fahrenheit? Minus 32. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So um, my community engagement for this project was I would walk the city and sing the city and it would be the little dramas and scenarios that I was witnessing and experiencing along the way or what I was thinking about as I was 
walking would become the lyrics. And when I would meet, meet up with somebody who was a homeless person on the streets, because it costs money to get into homeless shelters and more money to get into the better ones that don't have bed bugs and other things, I would give them money to listen to me sing. So it was a really kind of wonderful way to be able to share these, this pot of money and, uh, and to have these really intimate little audiences. And in fact, that was around the time that I realized that I really didn't want to perform anymore. That was the time that the gallery was even interested in saying, well, could we say at three o'clock you'll be on this street corner, you know, singing to these people? And I was like, absolutely not. This is a very private thing I'm doing one-on-one. And, and that was true, but I think it was also part of the beginning of me realizing that, geez, I just, I really just don't want to be in front of people anymore. I don't want to be performing in front of people. So that was the first one. And then after that, um, the project has continued. I've done the project in Toronto. I actually just am, as we're speaking, composing a song here in Australia from uh, walking along a highway the day before yesterday. And um, I've got some... Uh, iterations coming up for Ireland and other a few other countries. So it's become a thing, and what I've realized out of it is that it really moved away from being a performance piece to just the fact that really it's just a way that I compose songs, and it's a way that I really am one with the land and developing a relationship with the land. So that's kind of the backstory about my notion of singing land. Mm. I think when... When Ursula um, invited me and emailed me and told me about her project, I was, um, I was so happy. I was so happy because not in any way that, oh, she's doing my project, more that, oh, yes, this, we know that this is Indigenous practice. That's the thing. Um, my, you know, they say about artists is that we do stuff and then we research afterwards. And mm. uh, so after I had done the initial project in, you know, between 2004 to 2008, then started doing research and started meeting colleagues like um, Sami colleagues, um, Frode Fjellheim, who's part of an international uh, group called Transjoik, quite well known, and Ule Pirta Jarvi, another Sami singer. I met them in 2007, I think, and um, they were talking about how yoiking, they're singing their land. Uh, and of course, you know, Australia has a very deep and um, important tradition of singing land. So, so when Ursula came with this idea that uh, of this performance piece, I was, I was also super delighted to say yes because she was asking me as the, as a composer, as a respondent composer, not as a, oh, now you have to get up and do a big performance piece. And I just felt like it was a wonderful way for me to kind of return full circle to this but now on a different, coming at it from a different point of view and watching the next generation moving forward with this notion of, you know, we, our, our ancestors, we've all done this. You know, I'm, we've all sung land. There's another group um, out of Ontario called Digging Roots. They're a contemporary music group. And um, I've even heard them talk about how they visited their old people and their old people would talk about how they would sing Sing land. So we know this is something, a very indigenous, mm. very deeply indigenous thing. Um, so Ursula's approach was unique. Mine, mine really is to just go out on the land and just, just sing it, you know, just, just completely respond to it almost very, in a very synesthetic kind of way, you know, that the land actually 
tells you what the melody needs to be and it becomes that conversation and and her approach so um so part of her visual practice which is so interesting was that she was taking maps and marking points along the way and mapping uh between a reserve and the place where the song was going to be sung or the city where the performance was going to happen and then graphing that and it's turned into an interesting kind of shape and then uh so i was happy to receive that and i i i wasn't sure how i was going to use it you know i just because i i knew what i was going to do was um i toronto's pretty big and where the nearest reserve was would have meant i would have had to have rented a car and then i would have been in a car and not walking on the land so there was there was all kinds of uh, things I was trying to work through, but there was one park um, in Toronto that the, her line dissected, and I thought, well, that's great. I can go walk that park, and that'll be the way that I, you know, get a sense. So um, the song was really coming together. You know, I went and walked it. All of a sudden, the melody came. Some of the words came. She wanted the song to be all in, all in uh, an Indigenous language, and even though Cree is not, or Nehiawiwin is not the language of Toronto, I think we felt okay the fact that we were singing to the land, we were talking to the land. Mm. So the, the song became definitely a, a, a way to speak to Mother Earth. The translation, um, well, uh, let me, should I sing a little bit of it and then should I tell you what it means or do you, what, what would you prefer? I think that would be lovely if you feel comfortable with it. Okay, cool. The song goes... Um, That's the short form of the song. Um, as of course, as you know, uh, we sang it for over three hours. There's a chanting part in it as well, where it's just chanting or just uh, vocables. To say, oh mother, oh great mother, uh, together we walk on you every day. Uh, in this time when the weather is changing, we will protect you and we will love you every day. Oh great mother, together it is life that is tying us all together. So one of the things I commented to Ursula about was that I thought this was an interesting song and that this process of her commissioning respondents to write songs, you know, in years, in years down the road, it would be interesting to look back at these songs because there's not a lot of songs in indigenous languages that are written in sort of more a, an older song form. That song form is a beef just win, which is like a round dance. That you know, the, that song says when now that the weather's changing, you know, mm -hmm. it's really talking about now, right? So I think it's an interesting um, historical document, or will be down the road. And I think it's on, on that level. I think that's another reason why it's such an important project that she's doing. So she's tying also she's tying together the reserve to the city, and that's the interesting. That's one of the big interesting parts of this project for her as well, um, for me, because that, that first part of the song, um, that's that graph she gave me. 
of where she every couple kilometers marked on this topographic map, you know, the, you know, how high the land was or how low the land was. And so when I received that, I wasn't, sh- you know, like I said, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. And it <laughs> ends up becoming this thing at the beginning of the song, you know? Uh, so that was a really wonderful way to, you know, it was kind of like, um, it's like an 11th hour thing. The song had been written, you know, I, I, I did everything else. She asked me, it was talking to mother earth, it was an indigenous language, you know, and I went, wait, there's that graph. What are we going to do? But those song forms, they need to have a lead that's called a lead. So it's really wonderful that that, that became the lead of the song. Then for me to be able to get on stage and sing with her for, three plus hours, you know, that was, I think it was interesting. I, we were talking about it later and I said, wow, it was so great. I was writing this song and I was having a really great time. And then all of a sudden I was like, fuck, I have to actually get on stage and sing this with her. Oh no, <laughs> I forgot about that part. But it turned out, it turned out well. I think it, it became much more about, uh, she had this huge screen behind us that um, was just looped a piece of um, a scene from Toronto. How did it feel to perform for that long? I, I'm not sure if you do endurance performance or not, but that is a long time to be on stage. And can you talk about your experience with that? I um, I used to do endurance performance when I did performance, but I think my endurance performance was more like doing things that you know were hard to do uh, physically. Mm. Um, lifting things or carrying things or pulling things or yeah so I had never and so she asked me she said have you ever sang for that long because it was supposed to be four hours but I was happy it was like three hours and 15 minutes that was enough in ceremony I'd sang that long and in fact I, I've often wondered as I've stopped performing and as I still go to concerts and and enjoy really good concerts I really do you know look at some of the singers and go wow you're singing for a heck of a long time, you know, how's that? And uh, so it was interesting to go, oh, okay, that's how you do it. We literally, we literally sang nonstop for three hours and 15 minutes. I probably could have drank a tad more water, um, but really, you know, after, I think for about 15 minutes afterwards, I felt a little bit gravelly, but after that I was like, okay, that's, I'm better, I'm okay. Wow. Yeah, it was it was lovely to do actually. It was lovely. Um it actually was a be- I was so grateful to her on another level. I was so grateful that I just had to be present with myself for 3 hours and 15 minutes. There wasn't there was no opportunity to go and wander and think about anything else, you know? And um and that was that was quite unique really if you think of it. You know, when do we do that? When do we actually are completely there? And there we can't go anywhere because why? Well, you'll stop singing, you know, mm. or you won't know the words or you'll wonder why are all these people staring at me? Where am I? You know, so it was a really beautiful focused three hours and 15 minutes of my life. So and for a really good reason. I mean, we just we just it was like singing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to Mother Earth, you know, mm. and how beautiful is that? The other interesting thing was that afterwards, uh, I mean, there were people who stayed there the whole time. Kudos to the Toronto performance art community. Um, and a lot of them, or most of them, non-Indigenous people. And um, I remember saying to people afterwards, if that song is in your head for a couple of days, 
go ahead and sing it. Go for a walk and go talk to Mother Earth. You know, like that's our Mother Earth song now. So mm. you you sat here and endured this with us. You earned it. You know, it's your song too. So yeah. And how do you how do you feel like this project interprets reconciliation? And maybe what does that word mean to you as an Indigenous woman? Yeah, it, you know, reconciliation is our, our big buzzword now. And I was just thinking about it the other day about how, you know, when I was younger, there'd always be a word, you know, there'd always be a keyword, you know, when you really love something, you know, if you love cherries and you decide every time you see the word cherry, that's yours, like you, that's a bit of you. Um, so reconciliation's definitely become one of those words for us. One of the things uh, important to note about it, though, um, is um, the critical essayist um, David Garneau points to the fact that it's it's a problematic term in that there was never any, you know, it's it infers that it's reconciling. Where his point is is the question: Was there any conciliation in the beginning? You know, mm. so it's it's a slightly loaded and problematic term. I think Ursula's take is actually an interesting one because. We were conciliatory with Mother Earth. So it is a reconciling with Mother Earth. So I think that's a lovely, a really lovely take that she has on this whole process because it's not saying, it's not with humans. It's, it's, it's very intimate and it's one-on-one -on -one with Mother Earth, this project, saying let's get back in touch with Mother Earth. And so the point that she seems to also be making is the fact that the reason she draws the line from the, the nearest reserve to the city where she's performing is that, you know, there's old stories about um, the four races of men. Um, I was told it by um, uh, Leroy Little Bear, who's a um, Kainai scholar, uh, philosopher, and he talks about the yellow man had medicine, the black man had music, the red man cared for the earth, you know, and the white man was kind of the youngest brother out of the four brothers and, uh, uh, or four siblings, I guess, to keep it uh, non-gender specific, was kind of so adventuresome, just wanted to travel around and see everything and, you know. So I think with that story or that in mind, you know, there's this notion that the keepers of the earth, you know, are the indigenous people. So it is a, you know, it, it makes sense that the closest reserve is kind of like a memory. It's kind of a don't forget. This mm. is this is native people always are going to be the people who care about the earth. Not that no, not anyone else does, but that's, you know, if you follow that notion that we each had our gifts, you know, that's our gift. So I think it's an important work in that way. And, and I know that, uh, you know, I was actually in my music publishing hat telling Ursula that I hope she also um, thinks about doing something with the songs after, you know, yeah. as a way to compile, you know, and say, these are these different landscapes I went to, and here are the songs that came from them. And, you know, that they could become important songs for future, for protest, for gathering. And they are songs that she commissioned with this notion of, of um, reconciliation that, they could become, you know, important reconciliation songs that we could all sing. So I hope she does something more with it down the road.
how do you stay fascinated as an artist? And how do you keep your focus? I know it's a whirlwind. You travel a lot. You've been doing this for quite some time. So I'm, I'm curious on what keeps you fascinated as an artist. I think one of the things, uh, and this will be hopefully people who are sitting in their studios will be nodding their heads going, yes, this is true. The more you understand your materials and the more you understand what they can do, the more you understand your resources and what you can pull together that makes sense and that is dynamic, you know, the more that you, that an artist um, finds some answers a question, you know, that uh, previous works had raised, you know, uh, you finish a project and, you know, you've got a series of questions, whether it be an object or a process or an event. So the fascination then is in the next project of like, oh, good, we get to, you know, there was that burning question of, of why this or why that or why did this do that or why do I always do this or what is this doing when I do that, you know. So I think that's, um, definitely for me where the fascination remains and it also helps me to helps me to say no to things then too it helps me to say no we don't need to do that anymore we've 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 done that and and I think also just to be really honest um, I don't think I'm hugely competitive and I'm trying not to be in denial about that but but I think sometimes I also experience other people who do things so well where I go oh good it's almost as if sometimes I feel like there's a list of things that I want to do in my life um, and ideas for projects and ideas for work or major bodies, and then somebody does it. And I kind of just go, oh, good. I can just cross that one off. That's good. It's done. <laughs> They've done it, and they did it fabulously. Well done. And, you know, again, it's not in any way trying to say, well, it's all my ideas. But, you know, in that larger idea, that larger notion of the collective unconscious so the fascination for me is, is the focus, I think. When you say, how do you stay focused? The fascination is the fact that I do feel like as I'm going, I'm getting more and more and more and more focused. And that, that makes me really happy because then I know I'm on the right path. And I know, oh, okay, I'm not just like a buckshot spraying everywhere. You know, there's, there's starting to become um, a drawing if we start to, you know, collect uh, Mark, uh, connect all those dots, right? You know, mm. um, and then I think the fascination also is in the next generation. I mean, I generation, I definitely am moving to a different place in my practice than I than I was thirty years ago, where there's so much I'm. I just I know my body can't do a lot of things, you know, and I, I don't need to feel bad about that because there's this incredible wave of next generations coming. Who, who have, you know, so much potential, so much, so much possibility that it, it, it behooves me to just focus on what I need to focus on that little bit. Um, so um, I am trying to travel less, but I have to knock on wood because every time I say that I end up traveling more. <laughs> so I, I need to maybe just stop saying that altogether and then maybe I will stop traveling someday. Another question that I'd like to ask is what work are you most proud of in your catalog? Of songs or everything? I think in general, something that you felt like maybe maintained that fascination, you were in your truest flow form, you know? Something that you're like always calling back upon when you enter a project and need inspiration, perhaps. Oh, yeah. 
That's really difficult because it's it is like children, you know. It's like if I said to you, "Which is your favorite child?" <laughs> you'd be like, "God, don't make me do that." They're all my children. I love them all for very different reasons. So I think about the same. I don't think I can. I, I know that there was. There's also there's um, context around projects mm. that I think probably I could say I was more proud when I stated. Uh, boundaries where I stated my um, MO, where I uh, made sure that my integrity as an artist was not ever going to be um, messed with, where I walked away with the feeling that, especially in collaborative projects, that there was everyone's voices was present, everyone got to express where I walk away from collaborations uh, when I'm not working with in community but working with other professionals where I felt like I was I was respected and I was heard and integral and but not above or below anyone else so that's more I think for me the when I walk away from something and go yeah that that one did it that one did it all for those reasons more the experience, more the interpersonal experience in the context in that way. Yeah, and more the fact that I think the art world and the music world, they're not perfect. Um, they're like a dysfunctional family, but when, when can you be the, the good daughter, the good son who, who makes sure that everyone's being taken care of, but you don't get run off your feet or used or abused? in the process. So I think that's, you know, that's when it's, that's when it's important work. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not a career person. I mean, I, I probably, that's my biggest failing is that I'm, I'm not the, I'm not a career artist where it's like, yeah, I got paid tons of money and got tons of reviews. You know, that's just never really been my reality. So, but I've managed to make a living doing this. So, so I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that at the, at the end of the day, like you said, if you can feel like you were taken care of and people who were involved were taken care of in a good way, that is a form of success. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. In fact, I don't think we do that enough. You know, I, I've always been impressed whenever I've even um, in team, like, you know, if I'm building a large web project, for instance, and, and I need to work with a team of people, I'm always impressed when you start the meeting off with, you know, how's everyone doing? What's going on in your life? Okay, good to know. Need to stay, you know, uh, conscious of the fact that there's all these different dynamic things happening. Uh, you know, I think that's really important. So... And that, um, I mean, there's always um, there's a horrible tendency of, um, what is it, scapegoating. And I remember one time I heard, heard this really great definition of scapegoating, and they said scapegoating is collective guilt, you know, meaning that, yes, things aren't perfect, so let's just blame it on, pin it on one person, you know. So I've never really appreciated that. So it's like, how can we just make sure that we, we acknowledge that we're not dealing with a perfect system? Can we just acknowledge that? Okay, so let's, we're not pinning it on one person. It's an imperfect system. All right, how do we make sure our needs are met and it's okay for everybody? You know? Yeah, and I mean, this is kind of a version of that, I guess, but um, being a, a woman artist, or I mean, 
if if you if you identify in that way as gender um do you feel like that has been something that you've come up against like have you have you been forced to like reassociate your art through a, a feminist lens or do you feel like that's something that doesn't really matter through your work oh definitely come on i mean you look in any field and you can see how many you know the ratio of of successful female whatevers to male whatever, you know? Mm. So I think definitely we always need to be supporting the sisterhood. Um, in Cree worldview, and I, when I learned this, it just was, it was such an aha moment. Kayas um, Manakayas, a long time ago, before there was, um, before we made contact, there used to be uh, the notion that men could have more than one wife amongst the Crees or the Nehiawak. Now, it was told to me, this story was told to me by an old man, and he was uh, quick to tell me that, you know, he said it wasn't kinky. It wasn't like a man went out and just, you know, desired women and took them home and built a, you know, a lodge with lots of women. What happened was, is the man would, would usually fall in love with the woman, his first wife, and he would go to live with the family, with her family, because it was his role to become a provider now for her whole family, mm. right? And so he would go out and he would go hunting. And if he was a really good hunter, there would be a point in time when he might be bringing home more meat that she could possibly prepare, you know, more meat that she could cut up and smoke and, you know, do all the things that need to be done with in the times before refrigerators and things like that. Mm -hmm. So what she would do is that she would realize that she needed more hands to help her. And because he was living with her in her community, she would pick her sisters, her cousins, her relatives, who she had a deep love relationship with, you know, who she'd grown up with, who she'd grown up to love. And she would choose them to come and live in the lodge, in their lodge, and help her. Well, those women became naturally his second and third wife or fourth wife, whoever lucky the guy ended up being. But as the old man said, he goes, it wasn't kinky. He said it wasn't like group sex. You know, there was this intimacy that they were now living together. You know, he was still fulfilling his function of being a good hunter. He had his first wife. She chose the, the next wife. Why? Because it was far more important that she had a dedicated love relationship with these women so that there would not be any jealousy, you know? Mm -hmm. That's where the bond was important. The bond was important that they loved each other. But really, if you think of it, it's an interesting story where we've, we need to remember that. We need to remember that it's way more important that as women that we love each other. Mm. You know, um, the competition in the world is a construct. And it's a construct that has been placed upon different disciplines, different systems, different industries, different whatever you want to call it. And it's really, really important that we just love each other and support each other. And, uh, you know, so for me, getting back to Ursula, would there ever be a moment where I'd go, that was my idea? You know, no, 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 that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that my idea of singing land came from the fact that I realized that it was something our ancestors did. You know, there's absolutely no sense of, like, proprietary ownership on that idea in the same way that so many ideas that we have as artists are part of this large collective conscience, you know, and we just happen to be at the right place at the right time with the right resources to actually manifest something, you know. 
So it's super important that we stay really supportive of any women that are doing good work out there, you know? I mean, that simplifies it, but uh, because then it sort of says, well, then you're just letting somebody else do all the stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Because why? As women, we have children. We need to take time off when we're having children. We might become the caregivers of our aging parents. We need to take time off to do that. Uh, you know, uh, sisters work together. Yeah. And um, the, the final thing I have to ask is the soapbox moment. If you could say one thing to the world using this as your platform, what would it be? How many times we're moved by something, but lines are drawn to scare that feeling away. How many dreams fall by the wayside, because it's not your turn, not your day. If we try, we can make it real, let it flow and really feel beyond the barriers created. We just might start to realize, see the world with new eyes, and know that we're all related. So hadn't we better love one another, love one another, love one another, yeah. Hadn't we better love one another, love one another, love one another, Go. Oh.
got Friday.